Well, this past week, the communications class I teach at Providence Christian College remembered with reverent sadness the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which happened on April 4th, 1968. And we did so by uh, listening to a sermon of his, uh, and that sermon was entitled, Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. And in Dr. King's exegesis of Luke 12:20, he sees Jesus' declaring of a rich man as a fool because in part this rich man had forgotten from where his wealth had come. Uh, the proverbial farmer in Jesus' parable had built bigger barns to store up his wealth even though that very day his life was going to be taken from him. And ultimately, like all of us, he had foolishly forgotten that he'd been given all that he had as a gift from God. Uh, his place of birth, the assistance he got along the way, everything he had was entrusted to him by his creator. Uh, at which point in the message, Dr. King said the following, quote, Wealth is always the result of the commonwealth. No matter where you are today, somebody helped you get there. In a larger sense, we need to see this in our world today. Our white brothers must see this. They haven't seen it up to now. Fifty years ago, he said this, 51 years ago is when this sermon was given. And in many ways, around the world, the people that have been blessed with a lot are want, are prone to forgetting where all that came from. Humility before others and before God is first and foremost remembering that he is the potter and we are the clay. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And in today's study of John chapter 4, we're going to conclude the first big section of John's gospel and revisit his overarching purpose in writing it. And today, uh, appropriate to our discussion, we'll see in the verses 30 and 31 of John 20, the melding together of miracle and purpose. John writes at the conclusion of his gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The summary statement of the gospel of John is that the purpose of the gospel is that we would clearly see Jesus as God, divine, the incarnated Son of God, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And today, in our passage, we are going to actually get a peek into God's providential purposes in pain. By looking at the life of someone who came to him affluent and without many needs in their lives, and now is saying, God, I can't take care of this on my own. Today's passage will give us one summary, uh, uh, one actual overarching purpose for the passage. And then I have a couple of providential purposes that we'll look at. So let me start by saying the message today effectively for us to gather is that problems produce providential purposes. 
Now, you might say that seems interesting for somebody who believes that God is sovereign over all things to believe that problems produce things. So maybe it'd be more appropriate in a theological sense to say problems reveal God's eternal purposes. But I would say in the here and now for us, when we face problems, difficulties, challenges, setbacks, what that does is that produces an opportunity for us to see what God had planned all along. In two verses in particular, which are the bookends to our passages, verse 46 and verse 54, we see John's purpose in this section of Scripture. In verse 46, it speaks of the new character in today's drama. It says, Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So now we have another person coming into contact with Jesus. Now, he mentioned the, the, the water being turned into wine, which was Jesus' first miracle. And verse 54, it says, what we will study today, the healing of this official son, is the second sign that Jesus would do in Galilee. Here at the beginning and the end of John chapter 4, we see John tie these two miracles together to make a point. The second sign Jesus does involves a wealthy royal official who comes to the Lord in his time of distress. The first was a moderate to low-income family who was hosting a wedding and had run out of wine. And so Jesus came to their assistance by helping them. John wants us to compare and contrast these miracles and so discover the purpose that we're supposed to take, the, the providential move that is seen of God for us to apply to our own lives. For instance, both signs were what scholars call third-day miracles because it'll talk about how this happened the third day after Jesus something, and in both those occasions, that phrase precedes what happens. They were also both done in Jesus' home province of Galilee and both produced genuine faith in people who had seen the miraculous take place in front of them. But by contrast, we see that one miracle was done at a moment of great celebration and another was done in a moment of great desperation. One was to this middle to low end couple, income couple, and the other was to a wealthy royal official. One, the wedding at Cana, that miracle was done in relative seclusion. Very few people knew about it. The disciples knew about it, and the people that were servants at the wedding knew about it. But you contrast that with this done for the wealthy official, and this is done very, very publicly. John wants us to understand God's providence over both the good times and the bad. He wants us to be able to recognize that Jesus is who we need, whether we're celebrating good times or in our hour of despair. Additionally, the first section, the entire first four chapters of John, shows multiple times that Jesus' message, Jesus' gospel is for all. We've seen the difference. We've seen him reach out to the Jew and the Samarian, the Gentile. We've seen him reach out to men and to the Samarian woman. And now we're seeing the contrast of rich and poor. Jesus has come to all. 
I, I want to share with you a simple insight that is related to both today's sermon in John 4 and uh, relevant because right now as, as we sit here, there is a class taking place in our fellowship hall uh, every 11 o'clock hour from now until the return of Christ, I imagine. We are going to be having uh, a, a Sunday class for you. And so for some of you who really want to grow in some key areas of learning and understanding of your faith, it might be worth considering attending the 9 a.m. service and then attending this class. Right now, as you can read in your bulletin, they are walking through the, the actual science of interpretation, what it means to and how it means to study hermeneutics, the, how to interpret the Bible accurately and correctly. You see, the study of Scripture is one that will produce genuine applications because the authors of these Gospels and letters had an intent in their production of them. Now, guided along by and empowered by the Spirit, they still had an, an initial purpose, as we've already seen in the first four chapters of John. I'm often asked whether or not at PRISM we are a church that preaches topical sermons or expository sermons, as if the two were not compatible, uh, as if these two were at odds with each other, practical and biblical. But when one studies the scriptures as they were originally written, uh, there come some very natural applications that make sense in context and in our current situation in life. Now, the alternative to this perspective where we study what's actually taking place in the text and what actually the author intended for us to learn from it, and then finding the practical application out of that, the alternative is what some of us have experienced if we came from more charismatic churches where people would have virtually no contact with what the intent of the author was or what the historical purpose of the passage was. It would just be that they see the text as supernaturally given by the Holy Spirit, and so they just, meet, they just interpret it to mean whatever they want. And you can get into some trouble in this department. Um, the other end of that spectrum is, you know, people who've been a part of churches where the study of Scripture is very intellectual, and it's almost professorial. And depending on where you come from, you could walk into our church and say either or. I've had Pentecostal folks come into our church and speak as if I was this college professor who was telling them how to study Scripture, you know. But I've also had the other end of the spectrum where I've had people from Reformed and Orthodox churches come into our church and go, it was a little light and topical for me, you know. And so really depending on where you come from, in our church, our goal would simply be that we would see what Jesus would say to us, and then we think by doing so, the topic sort of makes itself obvious. It isn't studying scripture as spiritual or intellectual or practical or academic. This is a false dichotomy. It's both and. So now we know the context. We know what John's intent was overarchingly in the passage, and we now get to look at two providential purposes to our pain and suffering. We get to make application based on what we see here in the text. And so our first providential purpose in our difficulties 
would be that problems humble us to pursue Jesus. Problems humble us to see Jesus. I read from verses 47 through 49, speaking of the royal official, it says, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. This royal official had resources and means, but like many of us who come from affluence, it oftentimes isn't until we're in a complete panic that we will run to Jesus. So he gets to Jesus, but yet he clearly doesn't understand who Jesus is yet because he thinks Jesus has to come where he is to get whatever miracle done has to get done. And Jesus is going to reveal to him that he's the incarnate God of all creation. So by the very speaking of his word, just like that, a miracle can take place. The official says, I need you to do something for me that I can't do for myself. And so the first application that we have in our passage is that we often don't seek God until we really need Him. We're at times the poor person who needs God to provide so we can celebrate, or we're the wealthy person with an unsolvable problem that we forgot we couldn't solve with our great affluence. This is certainly the condition of many souls in the enlightened and prosperous Western world, and that's most of us. When you are wealthy, famous, talented, or any number of things that would give you a position of privilege in our culture, it's easy to imagine that you got there on your own. It's it's easy to forget the number of ways that the creator of the universe has ordered your steps and put you where he is. And in contrast to the pop psychology of our day, we are not the masters of our own faiths or the captains of our souls. We would be wise to remember many of Dr. King's admonitions, but certainly the one appropriate to today, that we not be foolish and forget who rules the universe. We don't control the tides, the rain. We don't control anything. Ultimately, God is the one who gives us our life and breath, and a fool forgets that all of our talents and circumstances and gifts were received by us by no merit of our own. And the need for humility is why many of us, given great means in life, but broken by original sin, need God to help remind us exactly who we are. He, the scripture says, is jealous for your affections, And he desires for your own personal peace that you remember that he's the one that's ultimately in charge. See, the downside of taking what you think is control of your life is that when things get off the rails, you have to run back to Jesus and remember that they they really weren't under your control at all. Jesus wants you to be able to be at rest all the time to know that he's right there. He wants you to be close to him And oftentimes, because our hearts are so prone to wander, he needs to allow things to come apart to remember 
whose we are. James chapter 4, verses 5 through 10 says this, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, the, the affluent in us, that thing that thinks we can make it in this world without God, needs to be reminded whose we are, who made us, and who we need. This wealthy man understood fear. A fear that was born of his love for his son and the worry about what seemed like certain death. A fear that in addition to the pain the journey to Jesus would have been anxiety-provoking in and of itself. And then Jesus, at the right time, does this healing. And I don't know about you, but I'm not somebody who's very good about waiting on God's perfect timing for His working in my life. As an impatient, entitled Westerner, I tend to think God has to operate on my timetable. My pain comes in varying fashions. Threats to my comfort, physical pain, the stress of poor choices from loved ones, the fear of calamity for loved ones, emotional pain that can be caused by internal issues but often triggered by the unkindness of others. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Well, we have to ask the question, why does God allow others to seemingly negatively affect our lives? Why can he allow people to be cruel? Why does he allow people to say and do hurtful things to us? In part, we would discover in this passage, it's so we would pursue Jesus. So we would remember that we need him. We seek him. So few of us are willing to take a hard look inside when life gets tough. We assume it's supposed to be easy, so instead of contemplating what the difficult experience or circumstance we're encountering is supposed to bring about in us, instead of looking inwardly to find out why something is causing such pain, we either quickly blame others or we blame our circumstances, and then we even more quickly move to change those conditions, which is why divorce is rampant in our culture. Because marriage is hard. Because... In marriage, at least Christian marriage, you are called to sacrifice for the other person that you are living, that they would see Jesus in you. And that's the purpose of marriage, not to make you happy and fulfilled. And I know that's a disappointment for some of us who were brought up on movies, where the purpose of marriage is to experience romance 24 hours a day and have somebody tell you every other day that you're the best person they've ever met in their life, and boy, are they lucky they married you. God's called us to something that involves service to one another. And so when that gets hard and when that causes pain, we can lash out at others instead of looking inwardly and say, why does that hurt? What is God trying to do? People, and I would say like me, 
who are averse to pain can make everyone else miserable because we demand that conditions in our home be without pain or stress. And guess what? It's not how life is. If you want to live with others, if you want to be in close quarters with another person or people, you better get used to difficulty. You better get used to broken people like you messing up what you had planned to be a very comfortable existence. Life is chaotic. People are selfish. And self-centered people can't cope with this reality. So they become demanding people who refuse to give others the grace given them. Unfortunately, at least I can speak to the culture in which I live, America, we experience this in church life too, especially in affluent cultures and affluent churches. See, in America, it's not uncommon for people and pastors, mind you, to leave a church because they're bored or uncomfortable or presume that some kind of discomfort we're feeling is some problem with others in my church. And because there's another church right down the street for me to pastor or you to attend, we can move on and presume that the problem will go away once we do. But as many of us can testify, you eventually discover that the same sufferings follow you to the next place and to the next place and to the next place. And if we're not careful, we'll just hopscotch from church to church and never consider that the pain we're experiencing is designed by God to cause us to look to Him about something that is going on deep within our own soul. And I have to confess to you that this is part of my brokenness. This is part of where I am injured in my soul and sinful and selfish in my inclinations. There has been a wanderlust that has rolled over my life every several years, a discontent that I've felt that I've often attributed to my apostolic gifting to start new things. And there is some value and truth in the fact that God has wired me a certain way. But truth be told, several years into any venture, it starts to get challenging because more people start showing up, which means more people start complaining and more people find fault with what you're doing And as a church changes and discomfort becomes part of the experience, people say and do harmful things to each other. And this may be a surprise to you, to the pastor too. And my aversion to this relational discomfort has kept me on the move so I could avoid pain. But my wife has informed me that God has called us to a permanent status here in Pasadena. God is not leading us anywhere because our kids are in college here and They're more than likely going to stay here, so she's made it very clear the Lord has not spoken to her. And what that has done is made me force the reality that I'm going to be working through the season of difficulties of life and community with you, which involves a humility on my part, a humility that is going to cause me to have to seek God for His power to bring about transformation in my own soul. You see, as as an ongoing ache or pain in our body reminds us that there's something that needs to be healed. Uh, Pain is a tool that God wants to use in our lives to show us where he needs to bring about healing and where he wants to work. And so my problems actually propel me to pursue Jesus, and that is providential purpose number one. Our problems humble us to seek Jesus. Here's providential purpose number two when you think about 
pain, suffering. And that is that power helps us find faith in Jesus. His power moving in our lives. His power changing circumstances in our lives. His power providing peace in our lives amidst storms. This brings about faith. Let's look at the passage and see what I mean. Verses 51 through 53. As he was going down, this is speaking of the royal leader who had been told the day before that his son was healed. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. When God's power manifests itself, the result is people developing faith in Jesus and entering into relationship with him. You see here, he believed and his whole household, which for a wealthy person didn't just mean his wife and kids, it meant everybody who worked there, which would have been a whole ranch full of folk. His household saw his faith, saw the miracle of what Jesus had done in their son's life and put their faith in Christ. This was the case for the disciples too when they saw the first miracle at the wedding in Cana. They, they saw Jesus and they said, I want to be his followers. We become his faithful followers. We become people who know who he is and know that he's the Messiah. In verse 53, we see the encounter with God through Jesus was so substantial that it transformed a household, but it also transformed a heart. See, in addition to the saving faith, of discovering who Jesus is. And certainly the power of God manifest in the life of Jesus here in the Gospel of John is designed to help us see Jesus is the reigning Son of God. And we get to enter into relationship with Him through His plan to rescue us from our sins. And we begin to experience faith or trust in who Jesus is and begin to walk with Him. But in addition to saving faith, Difficult times in life are the times where we need to see the power of God move as believers. And they build our faith or our trust in Him. And in the case of the royal official, in the case of this father who's pleading for the life of his son, we see both of these evidences. Let me show you one that you may not have noticed, because I certainly didn't until I studied James Boyce's commentary on this section of Scripture. You see, in these verses, it's shown that the father got home the next day, at which point his servants met him along the journey to inform him about this healing that had taken place during the seventh hour the previous day. What's amazing about this is, according to Dr. Boyce, the, the journey home from where Jesus did this healing to this royal official's house was only four hours long. He believed Jesus' declaration to such a degree that he was able to take his time getting home and attending to whatever it is he needed to attend to there. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd have been on the donkey pretty quickly heading back to the ranch. This guy's capacity to trust Jesus was somehow 
heightened as he experienced compassion and kindness, the real living Savior so impacted his heart that now there was sanctifying faith taking place too. See, there's saving faith, and that's anyone who would say, I now believe Jesus is the Messiah. I think he is the living Son of God, as we celebrated last week, resurrected from the dead. He can forgive me of my sins. I can enter into fellowship with the Father. But then there's this process of becoming more like Christ, and as we go, we begin to learn to trust God in the same way. Challenges come to our lives, and it's the hope that the Father would have that we would, as we stay close to him, learn to trust him so that we can bear up under challenges that come our way. This royal official had both saving and sanctifying faith. See, pleasing God is the next journey for the believer. Pleasing God is what we want to do as Christians. We want to learn to trust Him. Hebrews eleven six through 8 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God wants you and I to go places. He's got plans for our lives. And oftentimes, those experiences with him are going to involve steps of faith that we have to take before we actually see what he plans to do. See, in order to take a step of faith, you've got to be able to believe that God's going to be there to guide you, catch you, and you fall. I mean, it's a frightening experience to go someplace and you're not necessarily sure how it's all going to work out in the end. And this is how we experience the thrill of knowing we are walking with God is that oftentimes it's not safe at all but it's good. The application goes even further. Believers are beckoned by God continually to draw closer to Him. And given that we're prone to wander, the Lord uses hardships to build us in this capacity to trust Him. He builds our capacity to have peace when something gets difficult. As you grow as a believer, there are things you can trust Him with that you couldn't years previously. But many of us stubbornly are resisting Jesus being the center of our lives. And when we wonder why he continues to allow difficulties to flow into our lives. And I'm not implying that if Jesus is at the center of your life, there won't be pain and problem. What I am saying is that Scripture teaches pain is a certainty So you can either see it as God's tool for bringing about something terrific in your life and in your relationship with Him, or you can fight against it. Scripture teaches that the purpose of problems and pain is to draw us closer in our faith to God, with God, and trust of God. We're called to experience the redemptive power of His movement in our lives. Just our calling out to Him and needing Him to work, even if it's slowly, is what our souls are craving. It's encounter with God that we were created for. 
We can choose to walk with Jesus and see how he uses these difficulties to bring about his purposes throughout our lives. Or we can fight against that idea and spend the rest of our life experiencing the same pain and suffering. It's just without a single purpose to any of it other than to just irritate us. But God has promised so much else. He said, I'm going to providentially use problems and pain so that you would grow to know the kindness and love that I have for you. But we've got to be able to trust him when things don't go our way, when jobs go to someone else, when relationships end. We've got to be able to, in greater ways than before, by his grace, he wants us to learn to trust him. As a freshman in college, I experienced my first real heartbreak. My high school sweetheart broke up with me to date another. And uh, that was crushing. I look back, and my life has worked out really well, so I'm thankful that she dumped me. (laughs) But at the time, you know, you're just a kid, and you're experiencing heartache for the first time in your life, and you're just thinking the world is never going to be better again. And I was a young Christian, too. I had been raised Catholic, and... Um, and, and really didn't have a personal encounter with Christ until I started going to church with this girl at her Pentecostal church, which was very different than my Catholic experience growing up. But needless to say, I was fairly new to how do I cope as a Christian with this type of you know, personal agony, fear. And I, in our college group, had an African-American friend who introduced me to the music of Andre Crouch, Uh, Andre Crouch is a Grammy Award winning and Hall of Fame gospel singer who I had no idea about because I was a white Catholic kid. And what do you know when you're a white Catholic kid about gospel singers? But he shared a song with me that contained a biblical truth that actually sunk deep, deep, deep inside my soul. So much so that I remember it many, many moons later. The song is called Through It All. And Andre Crouch penned these words back when I was a little boy. I've been to lots of places. I've seen a lot of faces. There's been times I felt so all alone. But in my lonely hours, yes, those precious lonely hours, Jesus lets me know that I was his own. The chorus rings through it all, through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. I thank God for the mountains, and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Do you rail against pain, suffering, irritation, setbacks? Do you just hate God for them? He graciously allows challenges to come to us so that we would have to call out to Him because naturally we won't. It produces a humility in us that makes us chase him. It also evidences his power 
which causes us to trust Him even more. And we get to see what faith in God can do. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let us pray.